Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're recording remotely, but it's it's been, you know, recording remotely has been great. Anyway, I have different sounds. I'm not at the office where it always sounds like I'm about to be arrested. I'm at home where our very high tax dollars are at work in Tacoma Park. They're repaving the street. So like the whole house shakes occasionally. So if you hear that, that's what's happening. So that's just big news for me right this minute. (laughs) I am at home as well. And I have a sleeping Wally about 10 feet from me. I'm kind of hoping he comes and crashes the podcast a la that guy on the BBC from South Korea when he was doing that hit and his daughter walked into the room. Like I'm hoping Wally makes an appearance, but he's taking a pretty good nap right now. He looks pretty unconscious and I, he's even like twitching like he's having dreams so I you may hear him as he's like barking in his sleep but oh that, Chris, that'll be by the way so we still have not made this imp- very important transfer of the like <laughs> but it is on his mind he has not forgotten it so when we were trick-or-treating last week when we were at somebody's house and he's like you know he gets the candy from the dad who's outside and then he goes up to the mom and then he comes up to, back to he, there's no second round of candy and he comes back to me and he's like she didn't give me the scorpion stuff and I was like that's not Kristen <laughs> somebody else like I didn't like, he's just out of nowhere he's like where is my score is it here is it this house I'm like this is not the place and he's like well where who's Kristen and where is she like <laughs> can we go there next I'm like that's not how this works and then he even asked me about it the other day he's like um can we, when we get the scorpion stuff, can we make a necklace out of it? <laughs> oh, I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> but I don't know what, like, I don't know what the pieces look like. So I can't, you know, also I, I'm, I'm not very crafty. I'm pretty sure there is no YouTube video I can watch. I mean, you could probably make a very cool, very gross necklace out of the skull slash torso part that has the claws on it. Like I think the parts that Chris chopped up to ensure that there was in fact a dead yeah. scorpion inside and it was not an exoskeleton were like further down the body. So like the dangerous pokey part, you would probably not, you, I, you might want to throw that out before you give it to Beckett, but like the pinchy claws, like that's kind of cool. And I don't actually think it can hurt him. I, I don't know. I don't know what he's envisioning or if we can meet us at very high <laughs> I just want you to know it is on his mind still. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, what are the top lines? So we are going to spend today's show really unpacking all things 2020. Looking at the national polls, is Joe Biden holding the line? And in Iowa, is he fading? What is going on with the first contest in the nation and how critical will it be for Democrats hoping to win the nomination. We'll take a look at general election polling, which in some battleground states tells a story of Trump holding things close. In other national polls shows this as a race that's blown wide open. We will discuss, as well as taking a look at whether there's been any movement on impeachment over the last week. And we will wrap the show with what is one of my favorite garbage polls we have ever done on this show, all I will say is it is about Florida man at Tinder and fishing. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, that's good. I just looked. That's excellent. <laughs> it's, it's real good. It's real good. Um, so let's talk about what's going on in the primary first. We've had a couple polls come out over the last week, um, analyzing the Democratic primary nationally. Um, you've got Politico Morning Consult with Biden at 32 Warren at 20. Um, Harvard Harris also has a really positive story for Biden at 33. Warren at only 15. On the Sunday shows, you had a bunch of different polls come out. Fox News's poll nationally has Biden up 10 over Warren and up 12 over Sanders. Um, However, NBC and ABC show things a bit closer. Their polls have Biden in the lead, but but by a much smaller margin, NBC has him up at 27 over Warren at 23. ABC has him at 28 over Warren at 23. All of which, if you look at the trend lines, show Warren sort of sagging a bit uh, that she had been up there challenging Biden with numbers that were pretty comparable and at the national level has slid. Um, Bernie Sanders has basically held steady even in the wake of, um, there were some questions when he had his health issue a few weeks back, was that going to hurt his standing? It does not appear that it has nationally. And the continued fall of Kamala Harris, as well as the the sort of second wind surge of Mayor Pete, we're, we're seeing that pretty clearly. Kamala Harris now below 4% in the polling averages, with Mayor Pete now pretty clearly pulling ahead of her, um, coming in closer to 7% in the polling averages. Um, we did, however, have a new poll dropped from Monmouth. It came into my email box Uh as we were about to do this show. Um, so this comes to us from Monmouth University. Is it it's, national? It's national. And it shows uh, Biden and Elizabeth Warren tied nationally. So this will probably be getting a lot of play on social media over the next day. Of course, our show doesn't come out until Thursday. So this, you all in internet land will probably have dissected this poll quite a bit by then. But it is notable with so many other polls coming out over the last week showing no, no, no. For all the talk that Joe Biden is struggling, the polls aren't really showing it. They're showing him still in the kind of front runner seat, if soft front runner seat. But this Monmouth poll does show, uh, you know, with Biden at 23, Warren at 23, Bernie Sanders at 20 um, and Mayor Pete at nine. That's the other big, I think, headline here is is that's a, a pretty that's a that's a not insignificant increase for him. Uh, pretty good news there for for Mayor Pete. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> Are these differences big, right? Are we are people going to be spending uh, you know more time talking about this poll, which I don't want to say is an outlier, but is a little bit divergent from what we saw in the last you know couple rounds of polling for these for the recent national poll? I think right that the Harvard Harris and Politico those are online, and NBC and ABC and Fox have live calls, right? Yes. So I don't know if there, there's an, a mode effect. You know, we'd have to go back and look at all of it and we haven't done that. But, you know, maybe there's one currently or maybe it just has to do with the timing or maybe it's just how it goes in this particular round of polling. Um, but it does seem like there was a moment where Biden and Warren were tied and that moment is now passed. But unless it's this new poll is a resurgence of that moment or just all or is all of this part of kind of a fluid within the range of, of where the race is, you know, period. And. As far as Pete's numbers, and we can talk about Iowa next. I mean, Iowa certainly tells a more uh, tells a different Pete story, and that has to do with you know he's on the air at a really 
you know, considerable way. And so that I think has a, you know, is playing a role there for sure. And does the coverage that comes from that surge in Iowa change what is happening in the national numbers? What do the national numbers reflect? The national numbers, you know, are reflecting coverage. I mean, they are not reflecting as much of a, you know, field and direct voter contact effort in all 50 states. I mean, there's some of that. I don't want to minimize that. There's obviously some of that, but, you know, it isn't, it's really, you know, reflecting the the coverage that is happening nationwide. And is, is that coverage come from what's happening, you know, the, the movement in early states or is it coming from something else? Well, let's talk about some of those early states because it is in the Iowa polling that I think you can find some of the seeds of why this narrative about Joe Biden is struggling kind of exists. Um, If you take a look at the Iowa polling, you had some fresh polls come out of New York Times Siena. They took a look in Iowa. uh, They took a look in a number of swing states, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, But in the polling average in Iowa, you see Biden down at uh, only 15.7% with Elizabeth Warren in that first place at 223 in the Real Clear Politics average. Mayor Pete moving, continuing to move on up, up to 17% in the averages with Bernie Sanders at 15%. So the the Iowa situation, and we will have, by the way, I also just got an email, Quinnipiac dropping an Iowa poll Wednesday, 3 p.m. So we're recording before that poll is going to be out, uh, but we'll see if that changes this narrative at all. Um, but this is, you know, if you're looking for signs that the Biden campaign is maybe having a rough go of it, national polling is not where you're finding it. But here in Iowa, perhaps. Now, in New Hampshire, which we'll talk about in a second, I think narratively, the Biden campaign can hand wave that away more because that is the home turf of both Bernie Sanders and right. Elizabeth Warren. It's, it's New England. So if Joe Biden comes in third in New Hampshire, I mean, that's not terribly surprising or catastrophic, especially if he can rebound strong in South Carolina. However, Iowa is so interesting because it has been, uh, irrelevant is not the right word, but it has been very, uh, it has not been a predictor of who the Republican nominee will be. In fact, it has, I, I mean, at least the last three presidential elections, like President Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz, and Mike Huckabee would all suggest <laughs> That uh, I was not uh, terribly predictive on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, you have to go back um, to when I was a very small child uh, to get to an election where Iowa did not choose the eventual Democratic nominee. Doesn't mean it always has to happen that way, but you know, if you're Joe Biden and you come in third in Iowa, how much is that a big problem? Because it, it, if the polls stay where they are now, it's definitely a possibility. Well, so turning to another early state, Nevada, um, there hasn't been a lot of public polling in Nevada. It is uh, a really you know racially diverse state. Um, it's one of the early states. We haven't seen a lot of public polling. We haven't seen a lot of public qualifying polling. There is a new public poll that is qualifying. It is done by a Democratic pollster. So it was done by my former boss, the Melman Group. Um, and that has come out and it shows actually Biden quite strong there. So, you know, that's part of the story of, you know, Biden, does Biden's strategy involve a variety of states? Does he have, you know, you have a lot of candidates focused on Iowa. Does Biden's focus 
extend beyond Iowa in a way that's helpful to him or gives him some advantages. So in that poll, he has 29% of caucus goers and Warren and Sanders are each at 19. So that's different. No other candidate is in double digit support. Mayor Pete's at seven, Steyer's at four, and then others at three. Um, so that's Nevada. So, and Nevada, and the poll, and folks should take a look at it, has some other questions in there about like, what are folks looking for? And, you know, you obviously have, not obviously, but consistent with other polling. Number one is somebody who could beat Trump, but also someone who can work with, you know, get work with both parties to get things done that came in second as uh, from a, from a kind of long list of what people are looking for in a candidate. So if we're just to sort of wrap on the the Biden beat for a moment, well, although I guess we're about to talk about the general, so we'll we'll stay on the Biden topic for a moment. But I, I would love to raise um, or point our listeners to a piece by I think Henry Gomez of BuzzFeed has written a profile of Valerie Biden Owens, um, Joe Biden's sister, who has basically run his political campaigns since he was running for class president back in the school days. Um, she is not running his presidential campaign this time around. And so it's a profile of her and the role she plays as a family member who advises him. And it's really interesting. I point it to you all because I love Valerie so much. The article references very briefly her Harvard Institute of Politics study group, which she was there the same semester I was there. Her office was next to mine. I could hear her study group through the wall of my office uh, I can confirm kids were hanging from the rafters. She's this totally magnetic person. I am, she thinks it's perplexing that I'm Republican, but I am like ride or die for her. I think Valerie is amazing. So go take a look at that piece. Um, where Regardless of where you stand on politics or what you think of Joe Biden, I think Valerie is, she is just a fabulous firecracker of a human being. Yeah, good profiles are good profiles. I like the staff profile genre. She the, 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 profile. the kicker quote, which is like my favorite thing ever, is she says, Joe remembers everybody who voted for him. I remember everybody who didn't. But that's what a sister's for, you know? Like, oh my God, it's just perfect. It's just perfect. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to talking about what happened this week on Tuesday. That was last night. So we are recording again right after, you know, the kind of morning after some races that, uh, you know, people may have processed a little more or moved on from by the time we're listening to this late Thursday or early Friday. Um, but we should talk about them and then we can talk about the general, what does this mean for the general and for Trump and his day-to-day Trumpness. Um, so we had two, obviously the, you know, folks listening probably have heard that uh, ver- both leg- uh, chambers of the Virginia legislature f- flipped. So now Virginia is a trifecta, meaning you have the governor and both chambers of the same party. Um, that's big. That's a real movement in Virginia, ver- you know, over time. This is not something that just happened, you know, this week, but it's something that's happened kind of over the last few cycles and folks really investing in that work. Um, so that's big news uh, for Democrats. And I think it's, I, I I mean, I have to say, I think it was expected, or I think it doesn't come as a surprise, even if it is a flip, and obviously flips are, are big. Um, and then for the two gubernatorial races, um, so you had uh, one in Mississippi and one in Kentucky. And the Kentucky one, you had the Democrat win. I mean, I think as of when we're recording, the Republican governor uh, has not conceded, but maybe that'll be different by the time um, you know this this goes up. But the Democrat uh, leads Bashir leads by less than one percent, um, and it's a state that Trump won considerably, and Trump you know, 
campaigns have, I mean, this is, I think, a real rebuke of Trump. Um, even in Mississippi, where the Republican won, um, the Republican won by a much narrower margin, just like basically six points or so, while Trump won that state by double digits. So even in a state, you know, you could look at kind of the win or loss, obviously it matters to the folks in that state. Of course, it matters when we think about what this means. But if you look at the difference between Trump's victory in these states and, and how Democrats overperformed that, I think that tells you something about it may, you know, there may be a turnout story there. There may be a persuasion story. You know, there, you know, it'll take a while to kind of sift through the data to get a clear answer on that. But it's a real sign of something. It's an, it's over overall a clear, you know, a night that shows real promise and for Democrats headed into 2020. Unless you're of the mind, which you know is a reasonable take that the off year elections are, you know, are a little bit different. Gubernatorial races are different than you know, federal races. And and I think there's something to be said there. At the same time, this is a better night for Democrats and for Republicans. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I would push back on the idea that the Bevin loss is a rebuke of Trump insofar as he was, he had problems in the state, you know, with, with regards to education policy, the teachers in the state, really not, not big fans. Um, and you did have Republicans, for instance, you had um, a Republican pick up the attorney general's office in Kentucky, which Republicans hadn't held, I, I don't know, ever something like back to civil war time. I mean, it, it's, that was a, a big flip. So I would, I think the bigger warning sign for Republicans, and I'm, I'm, Echoing a thought that I saw, let me. I want to like make sure I'm citing the the correct person on this. Um, but essentially, oh, this is this is Josh Holmes, who is sort of Mitch McConnell's like right hand guy. He says that Republicans should be most concerned about what happened in local elections in Chester, Delaware, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. That really, for me, the thing that is the bigger warning sign for Republicans is not Bevin losing the governor's race, because that is explainable by a whole bunch of other stuff. And I think governor's races, as evidenced by the fact that Republican governors in like Vermont, Massachusetts and other big red states are quite popular, governor stuff is often able to be quite different from the national political environment. However, if Republicans are losing stuff further down the ballot in places where they used to be strong, especially, you know, suburbs, affluent suburbs, like that's the real warning sign. So I do think it was a, a absolutely a good night for Democrats. I don't think the Bevin race in particular is the most compelling piece of evidence on that front. Um, so, yeah, well, you know, we'll see. I mean, look, I, I think... There's also, you know, the counterpoint to that is that when you, you know, have states that have experienced what it means to have, you know, dramatic cuts to services that people really need, they they respond, right? They respond. And if that's, you know, consistent with what, you know, Republicans nationally are offering, then, you know, is that, you're, are you going to see that, that concern, that response be extended across the country? Well, I think you saw in Mississippi the governor's race there go a little bit differently. I mean, you did have Republicans hang on there, but you saw turnout very, very low in that race, which I think um, I saw folks suggesting, you know, does that, does the fact that Mississippi was not particularly tuned in to this governor's race, which is one of the first times it's been competitive there in a while, um, what does this mean for Louisiana, et cetera? So we're still not done with election season 
here in 2019. We've still got more coming up. Um, but 2020 is also approaching, and we have some a lot of new data about what the 2020 election in the general will look like. Um, a quick check-in on Trump's job approval, still hanging out around 43.5% uh, approve. Very slight uptick over the last week, not a huge difference. Um, national general election polls, we had ABC, Fox, and NBC all drop a slew of those. And interestingly, uh, they all show Biden sort of plus at least nine. Um, ABC really showing the best result here for Democrats, showing um, Biden up over Trump by 56 to 39. Now, one thing that is pretty consistent is if you look at all of these polls, almost regardless of who Trump is running against, he winds up pretty darn close to 40. He doesn't move a lot from 40, whether you're talking about Biden, whether you're talking about Warren, whether you're talking about Sanders. The biggest variation to the extent that there is some is on the difference between don't know, undecided, and the Democratic candidate. Um, this sort of suggests that Biden is slightly more quote-unquote electable, but I actually don't think the differences are that big. Like, I think all this talk about Biden is so much more electable than Warren and Sanders, I I'm not so sure that I buy it. However, the counter argument comes from this new polling out from the New York Times Siena folks, where they did polling in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. And yes. this polling does tend to show a pretty consistent Biden up by two to five, you know, in many of these swing states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, while Sanders and Trump kind of split this battery of states and Warren trails or is even in all of them, with the exception of Arizona, where interestingly, Arizona is Warren plus two. Well, now that we've covered the primary in depth, we're going to be looking ahead toward the general. And so stay tuned here after the break, where we'll dig into more here on The Pollsters. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. So Margie, what do you make of these general election matchups? Is there a big difference between Sanders, Biden, and Warren and all of this? So there was a lot. So I'm trying to do less Twitter, right? I should start by saying that that's like an important piece of this. But where I was on Twitter, I saw a lot of people talking about this New York Times uh, Siena polling in the battleground. And especially when, when contrasted with the Washington Post ABC poll, which was national, and they came out within a, a day, they came out, you know, basically within 24 hours of each other, more or less, and showed very different results. And so if you look at the battleground New York Times poll, you it's, you know, which is reflects the key state's for determining who wins the electoral college versus a national poll, which, you know, the popular vote is not how we currently elect presidents. You know, are you, are those two, both of those correct at the same time? We don't know. The Washington Post ABC did not release like the numbers for the, this particular 
group of battleground states. So we don't know the answer to that is the is the difference in the methodology or is the difference in a region. Um, this is also the states that the New York Times chose. It's not the entire battleground. It's a sub. It's a you know a piece of the battleground. They did individual polls, not just a battleground poll where you do eight hundred or a thousand interviews across a variety of different battleground states, and you can include Texas and Colorado and Virginia, and Minnesota, and all kinds of other states that are battleground in some way, but not necessarily what may what many consider to be the tipping point states, or at least from past elections. And that's this group of states here, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. But there are obviously other battleground states like Iowa, et cetera. Um, So at any rate, if you look at this New York Times poll, you would feel very concerned as a Democrat. Um, And there was a lot of lot of uh, hand-wringing over this or, or, you know, people freaking out about it, I should say. Um, and I think what's interesting about the New York Times poll is the way they then look at the, you know, the folks who are with one Democratic candidate, and not the other. So they have this chart that shows, okay, they're, you know, 40% of the electorates with the Democrat, whether it's Biden or Warren, because they have different head to heads. 43% are with Trump, no matter if it's Biden or Warren. But then there's a whole group of other folks who are not consistently D or R. You know, they are with Biden, you know, but they're with Trump if it's Warren, or they're with, you know, importantly, they're with Trump if it's Biden, and they're with Warren if it's Warren. And we spend a lot of time, I think we, meaning kind of the national dialogue, spends a lot of time thinking about the 2% of the battleground electorate, according to this poll, that's with Biden, but not Warren, when there's 1% that's in the other direction. You know, the difference between that 1% and 2%, well, obviously that could make or break an election. It's still it does not reflect the difference in the coverage of, you know, the Biden not war on people because that's, you know, not that much bigger according to this than the, than the, you know, war on not Biden people. Um, then the other thing that's interesting is they look, you know, they ask some other kinds of questions of these folks um, or of everybody really of like things like how do people feel about an assault weapon ban? Do they think women candidates for president just aren't that likable. Um, some questions about political, you know, political correctness and single payer health care. And they, you know, can tell, you know, it tells an interesting story of what some of these different audience subgroups of the electorate are like and how they differ on some of these questions. I, you know, without knowing what the how the questions were worded, we don't know are those actually the drivers of whether or not you're a Biden, not Warren person? We don't know that. These are the questions that they include. You know, they may or may not be how people sort themselves or what the drivers are. You know, they may be something else. Um, I don't know if the phrase single payer is, you know, the phrase that people sort of think about when they think about like which candidate they, they prefer. Are they thinking about their own or a candidate's views on single payer as a phrase, for example? Are they thinking about the phrase political correctness? You know, I don't know the answers to those questions. Uh, you know, I, my hypothesis is that that's not, those aren't the phrases that people use to sort themselves. Um, but, you know, they they can be illustrative, you know, at least in terms of thinking about some of these groups. So, and then, and I could pause there for a minute, but they also had a separate story in the New York Times about um, persuadables. Who are the folks who are truly persuadable? Is, 
is a persuadable voter, you know, hard to find, you know, are most people in the base of the, you know, one candidate or another, and then persuadables are just simply, you know, just non-existent. Everybody's kind of made up their mind in one way or another. So they look through, you know, they examine, you know, a definition of persuadable, who are those persuadables, different types of groups of persuadables. It's about one in nine, I think they they have as a, you know, persuadable using one definition, but there are other folks who I think could be ultimately persuadable. But um, and how how do they differ on things like turnout and race and education? Um, there's some interesting stuff there too. I'm really interested in this question they're asking about would you which one would you prefer? Would you prefer a democratic nominee who would bring fundamental systematic change to American society, which really echoes Elizabeth Warren's like big structural change message? Versus, would you prefer a Democratic nominee who would return politics back to normal, which is not explicit, which is at least implicitly the Joe Biden message. Um, And they sort of find that these persuadable non-white voters in this group um, tend to be men. They tend to back single payer. Um, they, and they, they by a 52 to 32 margin say they would rather have a Democratic nominee who would bring fundamental systematic change. So again, sort of, you know, underscoring that this whole discussion about, well, is Joe Biden the more electable one is I think much more complicated than, oh, well, he's plus 12 and Elizabeth Warren is only plus nine. And, you know, like there's a lot more going on here. In Monmouth's poll, they actually asked people, um, what is the likelihood, you think, and this is among Democratic voters nationwide, of each of these candidates defeating Trump on a scale of zero to 10? And Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders were all pretty close together. Sanders at seven, Warren at 7.1, Biden at 7.3 on average. Um, the others trail and either, you know, you've got Harris, Buttigieg, Booker, who are all closer to five, Klobuchar and Yang, who are below five at 4.5. So there's not, it doesn't even seem like Democratic voters by any dramatic margin think of Joe Biden as much more electable than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So just throwing that out there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know these are supposed to be approximations of the candidates' positions. I, I, you know, does Elizabeth Warren say we need to bring fundamental systematic change? I mean, I I don't know. These were- on a bus though. Like she literally has a bus that says like big structural change, yeah. which is not exactly the same words, but I'm, I, it's, I think it's actually a fairly accurate paraphrase of what she's looking for. You can argue those two things are not in conflict with one another. You could argue, I guess, that those two things are not mutually exclusive, but I, I really like that question. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, yeah. I have a thing about the word structural. I don't know. I guess I should. Well, you should take that up with Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I just feel like, I don't know. I feel like, I know it's a good progressive. I know progressives like it. I feel like some of these phrases, you know, I, I mean, what what do people think of when they hear this, right? And like what what's considered normal, you know? So I, I don't know. I feel like th- I understand what this question is trying to do. And I do think some of these questions are illustrative of, of, you know, something that's, you know, the conversation. I, I don't know if they ultimately are how people think about this or what the candidates will ultimately land on in terms of their messaging. Well, I guess this means I will not be buying you the Elizabeth Warren big structural change t-shirt for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I do like I do like Bailey. I do like campaign dogs and pets being part of the conversation. That part I, I do enjoy. Um, okay. Um, well, let's take a quick break and we come yes. back. We'll talk impeachment and Florida man. Yeah. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okie doke, we're back. Let's talk about impeachment. Not a ton of movement on this question this week, although you did have, if you are, as we said in a past show, huffing the impeachment paint, um, if you are really focused on the story yesterday, or I guess if you're listening to this Thursday, Tuesday, um, big story in that former or that ambassador to the EU, uh, Sondland, essentially confirmed that there was a quid pro quo going on in the withholding of aid in exchange for the Ukrainian government to put out a statement saying they were investigating Burisma. Um, So whether that moves polls, we will check in next week and see, but there has not been a ton of movement in the aggregate over the last week on these questions. When looking at the 538 tracker on whether to begin the impeachment process, it remains majority support at 50.7 with 42.4 saying they do not support it. When you just look at polls asking about impeached and removed, those remain very, you know, neck and neck with 47.6% saying support, 45 45.7% saying they don't support. Um, to the extent that there's been any change when you look within the partisan crosstabs, Republicans, it's, it's a slightly downward trend line. You know, it sort of peaked up there around 12, 13% of Republicans saying they supported impeachment. That has ebbed a bit while independents and Democrats have held firm. Um, but there's new polling from Monmouth as well that has dive, dived into, um, do people think their views toward Trump could change at all? Um, you've got about 27% who say they love Trump and no new evidence or information is going to change that. 16% say they approve of him, but they could change their mind. And that's, I think, a very interesting group to watch. Um, and then you've got the majority that disapprove of Trump. 36% say, and there's nothing you could tell me about him that would change my view of him. It's a new high for both approve and will not change and disapprove and will not change. Yeah. People are settled into how they view about Trump, although there is a good third of America that still says new information could shift them one way or the other. Yeah. And then they, you know, it, it's just interesting the way they ask if disapprove that the, there's a little bit of difference in the question. So if you approve, is there anything he could do or fail to do in his term that would make you disapprove or not? And if they people disapprove initially, they say, well, can you think of anything Trump can do other than resign? 
in his term as president that would make you approve of the job he is doing. On Wednesday morning on CNN's New Day, I saw people tweeting that they had someone on and was asking, they were asking like, okay, genuinely, if Trump could shoot, did shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, would you stop supporting him? And the response was, well, why did he shoot them? <laughs> so, uh, you know, as we have consistently said on the show, there are a lot of people who just, they've got their minds made up and there is little that can be done to persuade them that Trump is, is good or bad. And that's right. why I think for impeachment, again, it may feel chaotic. It may feel like new stories are happening. Oh my gosh, the house passed this. Now it goes to the Senate. Oh my goodness. But it would surprise me that like you would have to have a massive blockbuster piece of information one way or the other to really dislodge this polling consensus at this point. Well, I mean, that said, two things are true. One, I don't think we have it here, but maybe it's in the Monmouth poll. There's been an increase in the, or I don't know if it was Monmouth or if it was Washington Post, ABC, but there's been an increase in people who are following it closely. This is a very closely followed story more than other stories of this kind. So there's lots of people who are following this closely. And two, there was a big movement, a big sudden jump in people who were supportive of impeachment when this whole thing started. Now, it may have settled into where it is currently, but it doesn't mean that it can't, you know, it can't be moved. It moved really recently. Yeah. Well, let's wrap the show on what may be my favorite garbage poll we've ever discussed on this show. So I get a text this morning from my friend Christian. And all it is is a link to something called fishbrain.com. <laughs> and it is a post at their blog called Love at First Bite. And I think this is a bit dated. The survey itself was actually conducted in 2015. And the post is, when is this post from? Like, So this is not uh, fresh data. But right. that's okay. Is this a volatile thing? Is this a thing that moves? Who knows? Who they knows? Don't. And this is the blog post about this is from 2018. So all of this is dated, <laughs> but it is new to me. And so I'm bringing it new it to It was you. deep dive investigative reporting here. They really wanted to make sure they got it right. <laughs> More time was spent on this blog post from the first time that the poll was done to when it was written about as like was spent on the, you know, Ronan Farrow, Harvey Weinstein story. <laughs> <laughs> so, which... Catch and kill is appropriate as a joke as we (laughs) tee up this poll, which analyzes the photos used by men on Tinder and analyzed by state what percentage of young men choose to feature a picture where they are fishing, where they are holding a fish of some kind. 22% of men in Florida, um, apparently in... This really surprised me. San Francisco is the second highest proportion of like geographically where men on Tinder are holding a fish in their profile. Chicago, San Francisco at 10%, Chicago at 8%, New York at 5%, DC at 3%, London less than 1%. But Florida, it's all the way up at 22%. So then this is the really exceptional piece of this. Fishbrain.com somehow does a survey of a thousand members of the Alpha Epsilon Phi sorority. Okay, a couple questions. One, why was this your sample frame? Two, love my 85 friends, but like, why just choose one particular sorority instead of surveying perhaps sorority women across all of the Panhellenic conference chapters? But I will set that aside. 
They conduct this, it is unclear, is this a nationally representative sample of the lovely ladies of Alpha Epsilon Phi? We do not know. Uh, is it active members or is it active members and alumni? Right. Not really sure. Right. But they then, in the write-up, say their answers revealed that 46% of young American women in their late teens and early to mid-20s, which, again, I love Alpha Epsilon Phi. I am a member of Alpha Chi Omega. I love Alpha Chi Omega. If you had done a survey of a thousand girls in Alpha Chi Omega, that is not a nationally representative sample of American women in their late teens to early mid-20s. So we have a sample frame uh, description problem here. But let's set that aside. They then asked, do you find Tinder photos of men holding a fish more attractive? And they find that the answer is yes. And then they follow it up by asking, what type of fish is the most attractive fish? I'm so confused. To be holding. I'm so confused. 21% report that a great northern tilefish is the most attractive fish to hold, followed by 18% saying sailfish. That seems to me like a totally acceptable answer. 16% African pompano, 12% grouper. Okay. You got to Google what some of these look like. I am Googling them. Yes. Um, I only know them and how they look in in sushi. (laughs) (laughs) If it's not related to sushi, then I don't know what it looks like. Amberjack, 8%. Amberjack's very good sushi. Uh, 8% American Red Snapper, 5% Hogfish. I admit I do not know what a Hogfish looks like. 3% Barracuda. I would actually think it was really legit if someone had a Barracuda because they're not messing around. Uh, and then less than 1% Juvenile Common Carp. Um, so, yeah, that's a poll. That's a real thing that exists in this world about which I have many questions. <laughs> I think... Everything that's about this is incredible. I mean, I love the like completely deadpan, all fully serious reporting of it. And and the cherry picking of this one. So we're, I mean, the whole thing is incredible. Yeah, this is all, it's wild. If they were to recreate this, they should do it as an experiment where they would, you know, have men, not the same guys holding and then not holding fish, like A-B testing their their fish their fish photo. You've got to believe something like this exists because the amount of people out there in the world who spend money with the intent of making themselves attractive to those to whom they are attracted is enormous, right? You have the entire beauty industry. You have, I mean, like this is the, the selling of products on the basis of you should own this. It will make you more attractive to the people you want to be with is big business. Yes. That's big business. Right. So why isn't there a more robust industry of the, like, we will consult on your Tinder profile. I will say I have offered this service to friends who I feel on their profiles were not telling the full best story of themselves. Um, but, but I think this is a real industry we could get into, Margie. We could, we yeah, could- I know. I, I'm aware. I know. I mean, I have, did not hear it firsthand, but I, I have heard second or third hand of people who have used such a service. Oh, okay. Well, that's amazing that this yeah. exists. Oh, capitalism. Wow. At least if this person was told to hold a fish. I mean, what about what do men think if a woman is holding a fish in her profile? I would bet you that that would be extremely appealing to Florida man. <laughs> extremely appealing. 
Oh gosh. All right. What did we learn this week? I don't know. If you don't like the results of the latest 2020 poll, just wait. Ha ha. And then catch the pollsters anytime. That's what I got. Uh, if you really want, I need somebody to help me with my material. You (laughs) can find us on Twitter at the pollsters at. Margie O'Mara at Soltis Anderson, www.thepolsters.com. Come find us. We love to hear from you. Like, subscribe, leave a review, tell us what you think, preferably if you think good things. Uh, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks. Take care, okay. have a good one. Bye.